Love Letters is brought to you by Progressive, where customers who save by switching their home and car save nearly $800 on average. Quote at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who save with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. The night before we met, I had realized I could figure out who he was. I could figure out his last name. So I went and looked him up on Facebook and found that we had 10 or 12 mutual friends. I can ask one of these friends what they know about him. And the one line that is the foreshadowing that said, he is a really great guy and he's also super elusive. Mm. And I was like, oh, cool, whatever. But I should put a pin in that. Yeah. From the Boston Globe and PRX, this is Love Letters. I'm Meredith Goldstein. Some of us believe in the myth of control. The idea is, if we make the right decisions, we have a handle on what's coming, that we can choose our path and follow it perfectly. The subject of our story today used to be one of those people. I'm Michaela Cavallaro. I am 49, almost 50, and I live in Portland, Maine. When Michaela was in her 20s, she desperately wanted that stable, controllable path. Meet the guy, get married, have the baby. But life doesn't always work like that. Michaela's story is the definition of big change. 180s that brought her to New Mexico, New England, to buying a home and becoming a mom. Changes that brought joy, devastating heartbreak, and steely resilience. We begin in 1994. Michaela's finishing up school at Alfred University in Western New York. And like many good love stories, Michaela's starts with a post-graduation existential crisis. I graduated from college and had somehow failed to think about what I was going to do with the rest of my life. You know, I was very good at checking the boxes, doing the things, following the path. And suddenly the path was really wide open. I moved back home with my parents. There's a picture of me, I think from the day that we came back from school, of me laying on their couch with all of my boxes from school surrounding me, and I put a lampshade on my head. I feel like that photo is a very good representation of where I was in that moment. Michaela knows that her small Jersey Shore town is not the place she wants to build a life in her early 20s. She starts to plot an escape by any means necessary. I very intentionally got a job at the 7-Eleven in my town, which is like the 7-Eleven on the way to the beach. Everybody goes there. The cops hang out there, you know, the whole thing, because I thought it would be mortifying and I would hate it. And so I would find some way 
that probably says a lot more about my psychology. It does. (laughs) Yeah, but it worked. Between convenience store shifts, Michaela gets serious about her next steps. She starts applying for writing jobs and interviews for a proofreading gig at a local military base. But her real breakthrough comes from an unexpected place. Michaela finds a notice in her parents' church bulletin advertising a volunteer service program for recent college grads. It's called Mercy Corps. Michaela sees it and thinks, hey, this could get me out of here. So it's like a Catholic AmeriCorps, basically. They were looking for people to fill positions in Baltimore, Philly, and New Mexico. I ended up placed at a Catholic boarding school in Santa Fe, and I met Darren on the first day. She remembers this guy Darren clearly. He was wearing a T-shirt with sleeves cut off. He was a little bit muscular, and he was funny. And he just immediately caught my attention. At the school, Michaela's assigned an RA type of role in one of the girls' dorms. Darren has the same job in a dorm for boys. Their schedules are pretty much identical. They get the kids up, get them through their morning chores, and send them off to class. They then have most of the afternoon free until their work responsibilities pick up again when the school day lets out. It's in these mid-afternoon hours that they start to spend more time together. We would hang out and read, you know, sitting on the hill outside school. He was from Maine also had never been out West before. Neither of us had any money. We were making $200 a month was our stipend as full-time volunteers. And so we went hiking a lot. There was definitely a lot of attraction. An attraction that ignites one steamy holiday weekend. It's October, and Michaela and Darren are on a camping trip with friends in the Grand Canyon. Like idiotic 22-year-olds, he and I kissed for the first time in a tent with our friends. Classy. That's right? a, what, a, what a move. What a, did everyone applaud? Oh, everyone was in their sleeping bags, oh. you know, pretending valiantly that they did not know what was going on. And they're thinking, oh, we're camping with these people. Yeah. 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 Proud moment. Back in Santa Fe, Michaela's attraction to Darren continues to grow. He's funny, but he talks seriously about his life and his place in the world. He gives off stable guy energy, which is a big selling point for Michaela. It's the opposite of what she knew growing up on the Jersey Shore in the 80s. My parents were young hippies who got married because my mom was pregnant with me. They had a super tumultuous relationship and split up and got back together a number of times. We moved a bunch of times because of either financial stuff or ups and downs in their relationship. Like, what did you think your love life would become when you got older? If I had kids, I wanted to live in one house and stay married forever. I really wanted security and stability. When I met him, I was like, okay, this is it. I am done with other guys. He's smart. He's funny. He's steady. I don't need to look elsewhere. So Darren seems like he's the guy. 
He's everything she's looking for. But a couple of years after moving to New Mexico, Darren and Michaela both decide to leave their work at the boarding school. And neither of them know what their next step is in life or where they'll end up. So in the face of so much uncertainty, they actually leave their relationship too. Michaela moves to Oregon with some friends from high school. Darren stays in Santa Fe. The separation doesn't last long. Neither of our plans worked out, and we ended up driving back east together. I drove from Oregon to Santa Fe, picked him up, and we both sort of, with our tail between our legs, each moved in with our parents. Back in New Jersey, Michaela applies to grad school for nonfiction writing. At this point, her relationship with Darren is very on-again, off-again. They'd reunited, had a big fight, and broken up again. By the time she's accepted to a program at Emerson College in Boston, it's been several months since they've spoken. Then, one summer day, she gets a call. He got in touch with me and said, I can't stop thinking about you. I miss you. I think you're right that we're supposed to be together. Can I come see you? So he drove down from Maine to my parents' house and had to kind of win me back more or less in front of my parents. And he did. Michaela moves to Portland, Maine, the summer of 1998, as she's finishing up grad school. Despite living in the same city as Darren, she's insistent that they date the traditional way, which in her eyes means separate apartments across town. But things move quickly toward that stable life Michaela has been craving. She and Darren are engaged within the year and marry in 1999. Seven years later, their daughter is born. That's when things start to shift. They see one another as great co-parents, but slowly, Michaela starts to feel her relationship with Darren beginning to fray. The seeds were kind of already, had already been planted of us being really, really great at running a life together, you know, at managing a household, and also what we thought were parallel paths were in fact slightly divergent from one another so that over time we were growing just sort of imperceptibly further apart. Between the stresses of raising a young kid who hated sleeping and job stuff, small to medium-sized problems, it just sort of really slowly eroded the strength of our marriage. Did the two of you have a moment where you said, okay, this is probably not it? How long did that take? That took a while. Things came to a head on a particularly challenging family vacation. Darren, Michaela, and their six-year-old daughter, along with Darren's parents, were on a trip to Santa Fe, New Mexico, the city where Darren and Michaela first met and fell in love. The funny thing is, I can't remember exactly what was awful about it, but it was awful. We had, at that point, an argument in a restaurant where I ended up walking out of the restaurant crying and was like, I can't believe, you know, however many years later, I am doing the same thing in Santa Fe that I did in 1994, 1995. 
he was adamant, we're not going to split up. And that, given our history, carried a lot of weight with me. We did all the things, you know, we did regular date nights. And at some point, we tried couples therapy. But all the effort, all the self-work, all the quality time together, it wasn't enough. We'd been arguing, 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 and we're both just miserable. And we really were working on trying to have big talks and trying to spend time together. And Darren came downstairs one night. I was sitting on the couch and he said, I think we just need to call this. I think we should just get divorced. And I just quietly started crying and that was it. I don't think he even slept at the house that night. Darren and Michaela's daughter is eight years old by the time they divorce. And they work hard to make the transition as smooth as possible for her. They go to school events together and even have periodic family dinners for a while. The whole family just kind of adopted the attitude of Michaela and Darren aren't together anymore, but that has no bearing on our daughter's experience. So he and I worked really hard at keeping, just being in contact all the time. But Michaela is also single after 20 years of off and on, and then very much on with Darren. She's ready to see who else is out there. I, at some point, dubbed it my slutty summer. The dating apps were relatively new and exciting at that point. I was on Tinder and OkCupid. It was amazing to me how easy it was to line up dates at that point. It was just kind of intoxicating to feel like there's this whole universe of possibilities out there now. And it just felt really liberating. At the very end of the summer, I matched with Pete on OkCupid. Pete. That's not his real name, but it's what we're calling him here. Pete is artsy and handsome. He's a professional photographer, so his photos are just objectively better quality than the grainy fish pictures she sees on other profiles. On his profile, he's written out a funny list of things he likes. Dollar bets with a certain friend. Visits to the local rundown horse racing track. Michaela is intrigued, and they agree to a date. Michaela's daughter is out of town visiting family, so she has the whole night to herself. Pete takes her to a park overlooking Portland's Casco Bay. They have wine and cheese, and the chemistry is immediate. Within a few weeks, they've both taken down their profiles, and they're seeing each other exclusively as the summer of 2014 comes to a close. Under her co-parenting arrangement with her ex-husband Darren, Michaela is child-free on Thursdays and every other weekend. These days without school schedules and dance practices, it gives her the freedom to live her own adult life in a way she never has. It felt really great. I loved having a partner who was really open about how much he liked me and loved me and how attracted he was to me and also how confident in his own stuff he was. Things are getting serious. So Michaela decides, 
It's time for Pete to meet the family. Her daughter, of course, but first, Darren. So we had, like, the world's most awkward coffee, the three of us, and it went super well. We ended up at one of my daughter's birthday parties. We did a big blended family birthday dinner where Pete came with my former in-laws and my sister and her family. And I remember my daughter saying after the party, you know, I was worried about how things were going to go with Daddy and Pete, but then I went into the kitchen and they were talking about hiking and I knew it was going to be okay. Pete's becoming an increasingly strong presence in Michaela's life and in her daughter's life, too. He spends the night sometimes and even joins them on a vacation to Acadia, where they all stay in a hotel together. Pete doesn't have his own kids, and Michaela finds that it's hard to get him completely invested in her daughter. She feels like it's really hard to be half in, half out of a kid's life. And occasionally, this causes issues. It was always difficult to get Pete to come to any of my daughter's events. I specifically remember a discussion about a handbell concert, which, you know, no one wants to go to a handbell concert. I mean, I'm a little in, I'm, I have to tell you, I'm a little into it. I would go, just <laughs> FYI. You know, fifth grade, fifth grade handbells. Um, that can be the best kind of disaster. Right, right. And, you know, he was just like, I don't like elementary school concerts. And I was like, yeah, that's not the point. Like, right. no one is going because they think it's going to be a, an aesthetic, you know, wonderland. <laughs> like, you're going because there's a kid that you care about who's participating. And so he did come, but it, it took a lot of haggling to get him there. As our relationship progressed, I didn't ever want him to, like, live in my house or be with me all of the time. But I wanted our lives to be more integrated. And he was also becoming an important person in my daughter's life. And that's what you do when you're an important person in a kid's life, is you show up to their stuff. Outside of the occasional handbell-adjacent conflict, things are actually going really well for Michaela and Pete. They continue to see each other on days Michaela's daughter is with Darren and take advantage of the alone time that offers. It's a 180 from the more traditional suburban life Michaela led while married. But then in April 2017, something big happens. The kind of tragedy that changes Michaela's life and the lives of the people closest to her irreversibly. I want to talk about the day you got the call about Darren. Yeah. That's after the break. Okay, we're back. So it's the spring of 2017. It's been about three years since Michaela and Darren have split up. One day, Michaela is on a hike with a group of women. After this day of hiking, went back to Pete's place. We got some takeout. After dinner, I laid down on his couch and I was reading a magazine and like put it down and, and closed my eyes to just doze for a little bit at like, you know, seven o'clock at night. And my phone rang and... 
I looked at it and it was a local cell number. So I answered it and it was an EMT who said, there's been a medical emergency at Darren's house. And after he verified that I was the mother of the child involved, we need you to come here right away. And in my memory, I can hear her crying in the background of that call. I'm not 100% sure if that's accurate. That's how it felt. So we raced over. We turned down his street and see fire engines and maybe an ambulance, certainly a, a police car or two. I jump out and across the street from his house, a neighbor poked their head out and said, your daughter's in here. And I, so I made a beeline for that and the EMTs grabbed me and said, we need to talk to you. And um, the firefighter reached out and took my hand. And that was the moment that I knew what had happened. And they said, we're so sorry, he died. And what did they tell you had happened? What they said immediately was there's no evidence of foul play. We don't know what happened to him. I remember so vividly the sound that Pete made when the EMT gave us the news. It was a sound like he had been punched in the stomach. I think he, he almost did like, you know, double over. The EMTs gave me a bottle of water and said, why don't you sit here for a minute before you go see your daughter? And they asked me, how do you want to handle telling her about her dad? Do you want to do it or do you want us to do it? And I was like, I, how, like what? I don't know how to make that decision. I, and I remember just staring at the guy for a minute. And finally I said, you've presumably done this before. What would you recommend? And he said, I would suggest that I tell her because she's never going to see me again. So I went in to the neighbor's house. Fortunately, my daughter was not with him when this happened. She was with a friend. The next bit of it is a, is a bit blurry. I was with my daughter and her best friend and the best friend's mom sitting on this neighbor's couch who I had never met before and the EMT came in and knelt down in front of us and just told her that he was dead. Darren's death is an unbelievable shock. They eventually learn that he died from a sudden cardiac event, but it takes more than a week to get that answer. He seemed so healthy. He had even switched careers from social work and was working as a personal trainer at the time. It didn't make any sense. Michaela collects her daughter's things from Darren's house and picks up the dog they'd shared before the divorce. On the drive home, Michaela calls and breaks the news of Darren's death to her best friend, her sister, her mom. Later that night, she has to be the one to tell Darren's parents and that was sort of the beginning of 
this role that I found myself in of being not the widow, but the mom of the kid and the ex-wife of the guy and having to navigate that really weird and undefined space. Everything has changed for Michaela. Before the divorce, she had an in-house co-parent around the clock. After she and Darren split, Michaela found herself with a split parenting schedule. But suddenly, it's just Michaela, full-time single mom to a grieving 10-year-old kid. That's the part that I still struggle with today. And it's not so much the logistics of, like, she needs shoes for the prom or who's going to teach her how to drive, although teaching her how to drive was really not on my list of things I wanted to do. But it's the only person who cares as much as I do about the minutiae of this kid's existence is gone. To this day, every once in a while, something will happen and I will reach for my phone to text him. That is, that is just an enormous loss. Through it all, the tears and logistics, the notifying calls, Pete is there. He helps Michaela with her daughter and errands, and he holds space for her grief. Michaela still does her best to carve out time for their relationship in the months following Darren's death, even as the tone shifts from once carefree dinners in the city to something heavier. For months, we would go to a bar, I would get halfway through my first drink and start crying. And he just, he was not impatient with me. He was not embarrassed that I was crying in a bar. Like, he was awesome. He just really took care of me and allowed me to show up as I was in a really amazing way. As close as Pete and Michaela are, they know they don't want to live together. They both like the freedom of having their own space. But they start talking about a different arrangement. The idea is they could buy a multi-unit building. Michaela and her daughter could live in one unit, Pete in another, and they could rent out the third unit for extra income. It felt great to me that we could be together but not have to live together. But as the immediate months following Darren's death slip away and Michaela and her daughter begin to adjust the reality and schedule that comes with a single-parent household, the same conflicts from earlier in the relationship creep back in. It's not just about the handbell concerts anymore. It becomes increasingly clear that Pete and Michaela have very different expectations for what their lives will look like. For Michaela, her daughter is always going to be at the center. That's just not the case for Pete, who has intentionally chosen a very independent life, free of the responsibilities of marriage and parenthood. Things kind of start to fray more directly, more openly. He pulled back a lot. And we started having arguments more often. And at the same time, you know, we were actively making plans together. This all comes to a head when Pete, Michaela, and her daughter take a trip to Southern California. We were in Orange County staying with dear friends of his. It was just really idyllic. And it turns out the vast majority of the time, he was miserable. He was hating this vacation. He didn't tell me about this until months later. 
and said, I never want to do a vacation like that again. That's not how I like to vacation. And it was, again, the inclusion of a child's priorities was the problem for him. One concrete thing he said to me about what he didn't enjoy about it was that, you know, I like to be able to be out walking around and somewhere and then stop into a bar whenever I want. I do want to jump in here and say that as an intentionally child-free person, as an advice columnist, and as someone who loves to have vacations where I can pop into any random bar whenever I want, I understand Pete's desire to do his own thing on his own terms. But at the same time, in partnering with a single parent, it feels like a compromise is part of the deal. You have to know that. Michaela and Pete are back in Portland in the summer of 2019, when Pete finally hits his limit. He and I go out for dinner, just the two of us in our neighborhood. We're having an unmemorable dinner. And at some point I said, oh, so do you want to stay over tonight? And he just, he said, no. I don't know why you keep asking me about this. And to back up a little bit, since I had become a fully single parent, the opportunities for us to spend time together meant now that he needed to come to me much more often. I did not want him in my house all of the time, you know, I, but like once or twice a week to stay over and then get up and make breakfast with us. My daughter and I both really enjoyed that. And a lot of the time it was hard to get him to agree. And so his reaction in that moment just really pissed me off. We walked out of the restaurant and normally to get home, we would walk together and then he would walk to my house and then we would say goodbye and then he would continue on to his house. And as we were walking out, I said, so I can't convince you to stay over and you don't want to talk about it? And he said, nope. And I was just like, okay. I peeled off a block early and basically walked down a parallel block so that I didn't have to walk next to him. Michaela is tired of having the same argument with Pete and wishes he would just buy into the relationship all the way, as she envisions it. She gives herself 24 hours to cool off. Then she sends Pete a text. After all, they've had this fight before, and they always work it out. She tells him, I'm dropping off my daughter at dance practice tomorrow morning. Why don't we go on a walk and hash this out? He said something to the effect of, no, I'm not, I'm not up for that which was unusual at that point to be 24 hours out from um, what felt like an annoying but pretty standard argument. Michaela texts him again the next day. Can we please talk this out? He doesn't answer. The silence is so out of character that it really freaks her out. I go into full-blown catastrophizing. Like, is he dead? Has he run off with another woman? Which, by the way, you would think that he might anticipate that a non-response for someone who has dealt with what you've dealt with would be extra scary. Right, because that was precisely the interaction that led to Darren's death being discovered, was him stopping responding to texts. Michaela sends one more text. She tells him, I'm coming over. I'm worried about you. And when I get to the door, I can see through the glass that there's a pot on the stove with fire under it. And I was like, okay, so 
Apparently he's alive, or at least was alive in the last 10 minutes. So I knock on the door, there's no response. I put my key in the door and I start to turn the the knob and he comes like racing out of his office into the kitchen and yells at me, you have no right to be here. What are you doing? And I turned around and walked home sobbing. And that was pretty much it. Michaela is devastated. It's her daughter's dance recital that night, and she goes alone. She asked me in the car on the way home, like, oh, did did Pete come? I didn't see him, but I didn't know if, you know, he didn't want to wait around for me afterwards. And I said, no, we had an argument a couple days ago, and he didn't come, and I'm not sure what's going on. And I cried, you know, while I was telling her. So... This then leaves you with another messaging to your child of someone who's not going to be around. Yep, who just one minute is there and the next minute is gone. Once it was clear that it was totally done, I tried to tell her that it was his decision and she could not handle that at all. She was like, it's both of you. It was both of your fault. That is part of the thing about being a single parent. There's not anywhere else for the anger to go. A few days after the breakup, Michaela sends an email to Pete. She's still angry, and she feels like, after almost five years together, she didn't get the closure she deserves. He responds and says, okay, let's meet. They talk for about 10 minutes, and he tells her, she deserves more than he can give her. That he doesn't have it in him to be a family guy. After missing the recital, Pete does eventually reach out to Michaela's daughter. And for a while there, they'd get hot chocolate together every now and then. But Michaela, she's done. She focuses on her daughter and her work as a writer and editor. She's building their life on her own. I ended up buying a two-unit on my own a couple months later. And it turns out that it doesn't really matter that I'm not super handy, although I have replaced a toilet valve on my own. Michaela's daughter is now 16. They live in Michaela's dream multi-unit, which they moved into right before the pandemic hit. She has indeed taught her daughter how to drive, and the prom shoes, the dress, even the corsage— have all been purchased. Since her breakup with Pete, Michaela's dated some. But she says it feels really different this time. That post-divorce slutty summer, it feels very far away. My attitude about dating has changed a lot. I was finding that I was being, like, irritable and snappish on dates. And I was like, oh, perhaps I'm angry that I have to even be here in the first place. So I've taken some breaks from dating, talked a lot to my therapist, and tried to untangle, like, what is just like, oh, God, dating in your late 40s really sucks versus my own shit that I need to work through in order to be open to a person. She's also much more aware of risk and safety, She has her daughter to think about in a way she didn't have to 
when Darren was alive. It's very clear in my head that I am the only parent my kid has. And so it's not like I was thinking before, like, oh, she has two parents. If something happens to me, everything will be fine. It's just that it never even occurred to me to have that thought. Whereas now I think about my responsibility and my desire to do as much as I possibly can to keep further shitty things from happening to my kid. After two serious relationships, both of which ended in heartbreak, Michaela has a clear vision of what she's looking for in a partner. Someone kind, someone present. I want a person who can be a full partner. That does not mean I want them to be like all up in my business every minute of every day. But I want someone who appreciates me for all of me, including the part that is apparent. What advice do you have for us about coping with these big twists and turns that you might not see coming? Since Darren's death and then the breakup, I have tried to prioritize making some space for myself to just do what I want to do. Like last August or September at the beginning of the school year, my daughter had a school overnight for a couple nights. And I was like, oh, cool. I could stay home and like clean the house and, you know, do all. And then I was like, no, no. How about I go up the coast for a couple nights and just have no agenda? Taking opportunities to do things that I want to do and not sitting around and waiting for there to be someone else to do them with me. It's hard and it's also so, so good and so restorative. Thanks so much, Michaela. Thanks. Love Letters is a production of the Boston Globe and PRX. Today's episode was produced by Caitlin Harrop, Amy Padula, and Scott Hellman. Ned Porter does our audio mixing, sound design, and mastering. Devin Smith does our audience engagement. Love Letters illustrations by Ashanti Davis. Check them out on the Love Letters Instagram. Special thanks to Brian McGorry and Linda Henry. Our music is from APM. And if you like the show, please follow us on Apple Podcasts. You can always send us a letter. We are an advice column to loveletters at boston.com. We're online at loveletters.show. I'm still stuck on the handbells, to be honest, so I'm just processing a lot right now. (laughs) There's nothing I love more than going to some kid's art thing. I'm Meredith Goldstein. Thanks for listening.